Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Adolph Rupp coached basketball at the University of Kentucky for 41 years. He won 876 games. The Baron of the Bluegrass continues to be a highly discussed and sometimes controversial figure in Kentucky basketball history. A new biography by Murray State University Professor Emeritus of History Dwayne Bolin seeks to capture the rich and engaging life of a man who continues to be a major historical figure in the Commonwealth. This is a warts-and-all examination of a very complex man. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Boland to our studio and to also thank him for his contributions to Kentucky as a leading historian, writer, and teacher, and for his service on the board of Kentucky Humanities for the past uh, several years. So, Professor Boland or Dwayne, uh, welcome to our Think Humanities podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. Thank you. This um, Adolph Rupp uh, and the rise of Kentucky basketball, you just told me, was uh, in the works for a few years. About 20 years. Uh, uh, my professor at the University of Kentucky, Humbert S. Nelly, had directed my dissertation at UK on Kentucky politics. And Dr. Nelly uh, was not only an urban historian, but he had also taught a class in sports history. And not just sports history, but he taught a class in the history of UK basketball, if you can imagine, a class for credit Mm. on the history of UK basketball. And I took both of those classes, his sports history class and his history of UK basketball. And Dr. Nelly has written a book called The Winning Tradition, published by the University Press of Kentucky. It's come out in two, two editions now which is, uh, I believe, and is believed to be the, the best one-volume history of U.K. basketball. And in the process, uh, of course, you can't write a book on U.K. basketball without becoming interested in Adolph Rupp. And so Dr. Nelly uh, uh, had researched Adolph Rupp himself for about 15 years. And in the process of that 15 years of research, Dr. Nelly uh, – had conducted interviews, at least one interview with at least one player from every one of Rupp's teams from 1930 to 1972, Uh, over a hundred taped interviews that he had conducted with Rupp's players, assistant coaches, UK presidents, politicians, on and on. When Dr. Nelly decided to retire from the University of Kentucky, I was one of his last, uh, well, I guess uh, Dr. Gerald Smith and I were two of his last doctoral students, and Dr. Uh, Nelly uh, asked me if if I would be interested in writing uh, the biography of of Adolph Rupp, and I jumped at the chance. I grew grown up as a UK fan myself, uh, growing up in Webster County in Western Kentucky, and uh, he turned over this unbelievable collection of taped interviews, 
court records from the point shaving scandal, newspaper clippings, just boxes and boxes and boxes, just this unbelievable record uh, of his research, of 15 years of research himself. So um, it was a gold mine, but still a daunting task to dig through those records that Dr. Nelly had given me. I was going to say, what a, a valuable uh, uh, repository of all of this information. How did you begin to take what he left you and do what first? Was it uh, a matter of categorizing or note-taking? Or just tell us about that process. A little bit of all of that. Uh, I began to uh, get grants. Murray State was very, very generous in, in helping me get transcription grants to transcribe those cassette tapes that he had uh, given me, over 100 taped interviews. I began to uh, dig through those records and organize them into file folders and uh, try to make sense of what he had what he had given me. I continued to do my own research in archival collections uh, around Kentucky and, and, and other places as well, and to do my own interviews and, and get those transcribed. Uh, most of Dr. Nelly's interviews were done in the early 80s, so uh, I, I began to, to do my own. In fact, uh, it's interesting because Dr. Nelly did interviews in the 1980s I, I did some interviews with the same individuals in the in the early 2000s, and so it's interesting to see sometimes how perspectives changed in that intervening time period. Can you give us an example of someone that Dr. Nelly had uh, spoken with, and and someone that you went back and uh, and talked with also? Well, Ralph Beard would be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Adolph Rupp always said that Ralph Beard was the best player he ever coached, and. Dr. Nelly had at least two interviews with Ralph Beard in the early 80s, and I went back and I had at least, uh, I had two interviews with Ralph Beard myself uh, in the early 2000s. So, uh, and and then I heard him speak, uh, Dr. Nelly had him speak to his sports history class, so I had at least, uh, let me see, that's about six times that I heard Ralph Beard speak about his playing career with, uh, with Adolph Rupp. Well, you're, um, it, it is so technically researched and, and so uh, in-depth in uh, your footnotes are, are, are fascinating. I, I followed some of those as I was reading along, and, and to know the, the origins of that, that's so important to a historian, and mm-hmm. I think it's important, and it should be important to, to readers to know that, uh, that this is an accurate uh, representation of uh, Adolf Rupp's life. I also... Uh, it's not hard to see that uh, you or Dr. Nelly uh, also spent some time with sports writers or uh, reading about sports writers and what they had to say about uh, Adolf Rupp. That's right, and sports writers on both sides of the issue, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, on the issue of race, sports writers that were critics of Adolf Rupp and sports writers that were fans and supporters of Adolf Rupp. So uh, I tried to write... Here, here was the problem that I faced, uh, the problem of a fan and then, and then myself as a historian. And, you know, uh, growing up as a fan, as a basketball fan in western Kentucky, and uh, my father had a drugstore and the courthouse crowd coming over and wanting to talk, you know, about U.K. basketball and going to church on Sunday morning and 
wanting to talk about uh, the UK game on Saturday before Sunday school on Sunday morning. And growing up in that atmosphere, you know, as an Adolph Rupp fan and uh, a UK fan all my uh, life, well, not all my life, but we moved to uh, to Webster County, Kentucky, uh, in the summer of uh, 1966. And uh, learning about uh, how important basketball and, and uh uk basketball was and that was because of adolph rupp and i soon learned that i didn't and, follow i didn't uh, on each of the uh, the footnotes i didn't i didn't go to each one of them so let me just mention some names uh, sports writers that uh, some would know uh, uh billy reed of course is still uh, around and yes. speaking and writing yes. and, and doing interviews that sort of thing so so in Billy Reed's case, uh, Dave Kindred. Yes. Um, uh, you used uh, the, the the very well known from not only his Sports Illustrated writing but his NPR work, Frank DeFord. Yes. Um, and and uh, of course Earl Cox. Yes. Uh, who, who I, I did, did you now of those? What what did you? Well, first not, not, source on those. Not, did, did you go to Billy Reed and talk with him? I did. I did. And they were so helpful to me. Uh, Billy Reed and Dave Kindred, just gentlemen in uh, helping me. And, uh, you know, Billy Reed and Dave Kindred on the issue of race were very supportive of, of uh, Adolf Rupp uh, and, and defenders of Adolf Rupp on the issue of race. I went to both of them, and they were very open and uh Met with Billy Reed and uh, corresponded with uh, with Dave Kindred and Billy Reed, and uh, they were so open and helpful for me uh, in doing my research on on Adolph Rupp. And you know, these are two uh, of the deans of uh, sports writers in America mm-hmm. uh, that were in Kentucky during the Rupp years, and later went on, you know, to work with Sports Illustrated and other. And other, uh, well, Dave Kendrew with the Washington Post and, and other uh, great uh, periodicals and newspapers. And so uh, I really owe a debt to them for helping me so much in my research. On the race issue, which a lot of people will be interested in many aspects of the book, but of course this is not... This is not entitled or in, intended to be, I don't think, uh, from you that uh, this is Adolph Rupp on race. Right. Uh, there, there's so much more. But, but on the race issue, which you do spend some time, in fact, there's a chapter uh, on that, why is there a contradiction between so many people about whether or not uh, that, that blatantly speaking he was a racist or not? Or there's no question that he didn't use colorful language, uh, but in the, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of people did that with, without right. uh, uh, intending harm. Uh, but, but the contradictory nature of his uh, philosophy on race uh, and, and his uh, either ability or inability to attract uh, black players to, to the university. I do think that the 1966 game against Texas Western was a turning point in, in that issue, but a lot of people use the argument that he was a, 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 a person of his times, a man of his times. I, I don't exactly buy that. I mean, my, my father was uh, a contemporary of Adolph Rupp, and my father 
uh, would not use the racist language that Adolf. There's no doubt that he used racist language. He used the N word, and he he he. It's been documented time and time again that that he he did that. But uh, but uh, at the same time, he he in some ways he was progressive on the race issue. For instance, he played teams with uh, African-American players where other teams in the Deep South uh, would, uh, it was a state law in Mississippi that that teams uh, like Mississippi State could not even play teams with, uh, with black players. Mississippi State had to, had to sneak out of the state to play in the NCAA tournament because they had to play against a team with African-American players. Uh, Rupp would play all comers in, from the very beginning or in the, in, early on in the, in the 50s would play uh, teams with, with African-American players. When he was not recruiting black players himself, he often helped players like Jim Tucker uh, gain a scholarship to Duquesne, and Jim Tucker became the leading scorer in Duquesne's history. Um, so in some ways, uh, he was, for that time period, progressive. But my argument is that uh, of all the coaches in America, he was the most powerful. And in a border state, he could have gone much farther. He could have uh, really made a statement and to recruit black players. He waited, and instead it was Roy Skinner at Vanderbilt who recruited Perry Wallace to become the first African-American uh, uh, athlete in the Southeastern Conference, not Adolph Rupp. So when you talk about his delay or his uh, uh, waiting to recruit and, and put a, uh, an African-American on uh, a Kentucky team, can you can you easily put that off to to his to racism or to now he says uh, and you you uh, accurately portray that he didn't want to put those uh, kids on his team because of uh, playing in the south yes. that he was protecting yeah. them do, do you do you buy that that was the argument that he used uh, he used that with Wesley Unsel uh, you know uh, John Oswald the president of the University of Kentucky even went with Rupp to visit uh, Wesley Ansel's home, the uh, Louisville Seneca star, uh, in, uh, 19, in, in the mid-1960s to recruit Unseld. And when Mrs. Unseld asked if uh, Rupp could protect uh, Wesley Unseld when they went to those deep south cities like Starkville and Oxford, if he could protect, protect uh, her son, he said, no, ma'am, I can't do that. This is the same, same time period that, that Perry Wallace, this is what Perry Wallace faced when he went to pl Vanderbilt and played in those same deep south cities. Somebody had to uh, be that, uh, that banner bearer. Uh, to. Uh, but I found one instance, uh, Bill, where Rupp had actually recruited two African-American players. He told a sports writer for the Atlanta Journal, that he had recruited two African-American players uh, in the early 60s. This is 61 and 62. And uh, when the story came out in the Atlanta Journal, Rupp got so much flack from the fans back home in Kentucky that he retracted that story and said that he had been misquoted. This is an example where I think that Kentucky changed 
Rupp, but I think Rupp could have done more in this area than he than he did. Well, Dwayne, we've never talked about this, and uh, to our listeners, it is a uh, a revealing of my uh, my my true age and generation. Uh, I was at the Texas Western game at wow. the University of Maryland, wow. and uh, and I. Uh, at that time, uh, the uh, the basketball players here at UK uh, lived in the dormitories uh, along with with students, and uh, my cousins uh, lived on the same floor as Larry Conley and Tommy Cron. And uh, over the years, um, I have uh, always uh, relished uh, the the friendship that I had with with that team and with Conley and Cron. And and I do remember, and I've heard Larry Conley speak on this. And I remember very distinctly myself, there was among the student body and among the fans and among the players, no mention of race uh, at, that, uh, at that crucial game in, in, in their career. Uh, they were just two competitive uh, ball teams. Uh, if you remember, Larry Conley was ill, yes. uh, didn't, didn't yes. have his best game, and they lost. But um, a lot of people read into that uh, some misdeeds and negative thoughts about, about race and Rupp and, and even the players, which was just simply not true. I think that just came later after the game. That, that game became more symbolic after the game was over, after the game was played. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, besides the, um, as we said, uh, the, the, the man uh, is so – many, uh, his makeup, so many different uh, things. Just tell us a little bit about Adolph Rupp uh, uh, as a boy and uh, growing up in Kansas and, and coming to UK as uh, a never coached a college game before in his life. So just give us a little biography of you, if you well, will, of, of, of Coach Rupp. Well, he came, he came from uh, German Mennonite stock, and his parents were German Mennonite immigrants, uh, and came to the wheat fields of Kansas, and uh, Rupp grew up speaking German and uh, did not speak English until he was six years old and uh, went to high school during the World War I years. I've always found that fascinating. You know, we're fighting Germany, and here he is in a German Mennonite community, and he his uh, years in high school uh completely uh, coincided with the World War I years, 1915 to 1919. And uh, I got two reels of the Halsted Independent newspaper, uh, mainly to see uh, the box scores from the Halsted Dragons ball games to see how he, he played. And it was very interesting because in uh, 1915 and 1960, 1916, they ran two columns in the German language. Mm. But then in 1917, when America joined the war, those columns disappeared all of a sudden. And uh, Halsted uh, kind of went overboard in trying to become as patriotic as possible. One of uh, Adolf's brothers, Adolf was too young himself, but one of his brothers joined up to fight uh, for the Allies. And and they went over the quotas for scrap metal and for victory gardens, and they tried to show how patriotic the, the town of Halsted was. Adolph was a star at Halsted uh, his junior year and his, uh, and his uh, senior year, 
uh, starred in the uh, senior play uh, at Halsted High School, graduated from Halsted, and while many of his classmates stayed back on the farm or went to Emporia State, he uh, went out on his own and went down the road to Lawrence to uh, enter the University of Kansas. And there at Kansas, he uh, played uh, basketball for one of the uh, legends of the game, Forrest Fogg Allen, and he attended class with the inventor of the game, James Naismith, uh, who was a physical education instructor. By the way, James Naismith, who had been the first basketball coach at the University of Kansas, is the only losing coach in Kansas's history and <laughs> <laughs> the inventor of the game. Yeah. But uh, and uh, Adolph played uh, for Fog Allen for four years, but he never scored a point. <laughs> never scored a point during his four years at Kansas. Is that right? <laughs> he was a sub the four years and played for the subs. And, but he never scored a point uh, during his four years there. But he learned the game. He learned the game from Naismith, and he learned the in the he learned the game from Fog Allen. Uh, and then uh, after that, he he uh, began his coaching career first at Burr Oak, Kansas, where he coached basketball, and then he became a wrestling coach of all things at Marshalltown, Iowa. Uh, he thought he was getting a basketball job, but when he got there. Uh, they didn't need a basketball coach. They needed a wrestling coach. And he won the state title as a wrestling coach. He didn't know anything about wrestling, but he checked that book out of the library and uh, learned all he could about wrestling. And with his star, Allie Morrison, won the state title. Then he went to Freeport, Illinois. And by the way, at Freeport, Illinois, uh, one of his star players was William Mosley, uh, an African-American player mm -hmm. at Freeport. And he coached there for three, I think, three years before he went and applied for the job at the University of Kentucky in 1930. And uh, he was one of, uh, I think, 77 players, uh, 77 candidates for the job at uh, the University of Kentucky. He told them he was the best damn coach in America and you better be hired. And, uh, and they hired him as... Uh, out of all those candidates. He now, now, that is a strange uh, sort of uh, part of the story is that he really, not having uh, coached, and I'm sure that some of the other folks that they were talking to had probably much more experience, so he must have been a heck of a salesman. He was a heck of a salesman. He, he really wasn't that impressed with the facilities at UK. <laughs> Old alumni gym was not as good a gym as the one he coached in at Freeport, Illinois. Uh, and uh, he was not he was not impressed uh, much with the surrounding neighborhood uh, that he saw around uh, the Lexington community. But uh, but he took the job believing that uh, he needed to get in the on the college level. And when he got to UK, he immediately won. But he was not the one that built the UK tradition. Johnny Meyer, the coach before him, had a, something like a forty-five and ten record before him. Uh, Meyer would go on and coach at Tennessee against Rupp and at Florida. He left UK for a job at Miami of Ohio, but his record the year before Rupp came was 16-3. and And then Rupp built on what Johnny Meyer had already built. And I think uh, in the first 10 years that Rupp coached at UK, 
His record was 162 and 37. So he won immediately when he came to UK in that first decade. Was the um, other than uh, race uh, as as a controversy, if you will, the uh, the scandal, uh, the gambling scandal uh, that occurred uh, not directly uh, to him but to his players was a real. A mark on his record, that, uh, wasn't it? That was devastating, and he uh, made an infam- infamous uh, quote uh, when he said that uh, when the point-shaving scandals began to break, it wasn't just UK, it was uh, scores of schools that were involved in those point-shaving scandals and fixed-game scandals. Not just New York schools, but Midwestern schools. I think Bradley was involved and uh, other other Midwestern schools as well. And uh, when that news came out, Rupp made the statement that you can't touch my boys with a 10-foot pole. And when three of his players were arrested, uh, including uh, Ralph Beard, Alex Groza, and Dale Barnstable, uh, the gleeful... Eastern Press uh, harked back to that statement that Rupp had made. Did you talk to to Ralph Beard about? I did, and uh, he was just remorseful, and he said he accepted six hundred dollars. He said he he never threw a game, and he said that he never did anything to shave points. Uh, he said, but he did accept six hundred dollars from gamblers. Uh, poor kid from Louisville. Uh, from Louisville Male High School, and you know the the issue there was not throwing games, was not fixing games, but it was shaving points to under the under the line, under the point spread. In, in other words, they knew what the point spread was going in, and they would not score, or they scored if they had to to keep it under the line that's how the gambling uh took place exactly it didn't do uh coach rupp uh any good uh, to have this relationship though with a fellow named curd either did it and why why didn't somebody tap him on the shoulder the president of the university or somebody and and just say you you need a, a different friend than that it's a strange relationship he owned a tobacco warehouse with ed curd one of the biggest bookies in america who owned uh a bookie joint on Main Street in Lexington, Kentucky, above the Mayfair Bar, and would travel with the team uh, when they traveled to uh, Madison Square Garden in New York City. Ed Curd would be right along with the ke- team. They would go to the uh, and team members as well would go to the Copacabana Club after a game and uh, and party together after after a victory. And so that certainly didn't bode well when the trials, uh, you know, in Judge Saul Street, the uh, attorney, uh, the judge, uh, you can see that coming up again and again in the court transcripts, uh, Rupp's relationship with Ed Curd. And they misspelled his name, spelled it with a K instead of a C, but, but his name comes up again and again in the court transcripts. But uh, Rupp, other than by innuendo, was never implicated. No, he was not, although the team uh, got the death sentence and they canceled the season the next season in 52 and 53. What do you want this uh, this book to, to be uh, at the very end? When 
I, it, to me, it seems like that it is uh, written uh, as a historical record, but it's also, I think, uh, as, as a historian, you have written this for people who might not know Adolf Rupp or Kentuckians even, a younger generation that see uh, a Rupp on the arena downtown Lexington but might not know who he was. Yeah, I hope that's the case. I, that was my problem, being a fan and being a historian, always seeking a balance between uh, between being a, an admirer. Uh, I, I feel like I'm a member of Big Blue Nation today, but still I, I want to be a historian too, and I want to write a balanced account. I want uh, this book to be one that a general reader could pick up and uh, understand uh, who Adolf Rupp was and his role in making, uh, uh, I think, more than anybody else in the pre-television years anyway, uh, college basketball into a big-time college sport. I think Rupp would be appalled, uh, well, maybe not appalled is the proper word, astounded at the salaries that Coach Cal and Coach K make today. He made $32,000 as his top salary. And, of course, he had a Hereford Farm, Leaf Clover Hereford uh, Farm, where he raised uh, uh, Hereford cattle. He was president of the uh, Kentucky Hereford Association. He had stock in uh, bourbon distilleries in Bardstown. Uh, He had uh, uh, some insurance business. Uh, He had his television show, his radio show. Uh, he died a very wealthy man, uh, but I think he would be astounded at the salaries that these coaches make today. How was he at the very end of his life? Uh, after and and you always read and as you've written, um, forced retirement because of the university's um, uh, rule that that you had to retire at age uh, seventy. And uh, did. Was he bitter about that? Could they, why why couldn't they have? I mean, was he still in good shape at that time? No, he was very ill. He was at sick. 70? He was sick. Suffered from cancer and diabetes at the end. I think he was drinking a lot. Uh, I think that uh, uh, he was in bad shape. Uh, he he was served as the director of the Memphis Tams in the uh, old ABA. Uh, and so he traveled to Memphis back and forth some. He was offered the coaching job at Duke University, if you can imagine that. Can you imagine Adolph Rupp being the coach of Duke? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that, would, that would rile some, uh, some big Blue Nation fans today. But I think he remained bitter to the end about uh, being uh, dismissed at 70, although that was just a, a university rule that uh, – forced retirement at 70 years old. He never accepted the fact that uh, he was having to leave. He, he wasn't That's ready right. to leave, and he That's remained right. bitter about that? Yes, he said, if you make me retire at 70, you might as well take me out to Lexington Cemetery. Uh, he lived on for five more years, but, uh, but uh, I think those last five years were extremely hard for him. Well, uh, Professor Boland, you've done such a, a magnificent job with this. I know it's... Uh, you're so proud of it. Your whole family is uh, is pleased and proud. Well, it's been 20 um, years for Evelyn and Wesley and Kim and Joe, and I think they're they are uh, 
had gotten used to living with Uncle Adolf, but, uh, but I think they're happy that it's out. Well, I was going to say they're not they're not too too far away from twenty themselves, so uh, they, they they have they've grown up with it. And, That's right. Uh, and I know they celebrate uh, with you. You've got appearances uh, uh, scheduled, uh, and we look forward to having you at the Kentucky uh, Book uh, Fair in November. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, uh, people will uh, receive this book uh, with. With, with the gratitude and, the, and uh, the recognition of the hard work that you've put in on it. Thank you, Bill Goodman. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.